and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Megan Stevenson, Assistant Professor of Law at George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School. We will discuss her article, Algorithmic Risk Assessment in the Hands of Humans, which she co-authored with Jennifer Doliak. So welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm so glad you've reached out because this is a really timely subject, and I found your paper really fascinating and also kind of provocative in terms of of some of its findings. Uh, but before we get into those findings and, and what specifically you were studying, I, I mean, I, I was wondering if you could talk more generally about kind of how sentencing criminal sentencing has worked and how people are suggesting it might work in in the future. So so you're talking about algorithmic risk assessment and how it affects criminal sentencing. How did how did sentence sentences traditionally get determined? Well, the United States criminal justice system is characterized with a lot of discretion. A variety of different actors throughout the criminal proceedings make judgment calls. And those judgment calls can be hugely influential. Now, sentencing is, of course, you know, one of the most important judgment calls that gets made throughout the process. And judges can take a variety of factors into account, and they can have a variety of different goals uh, in mind when they're when they're setting a sentence. Now, you know, one of the classic goals in sentencing is this idea of uh, retribution that somebody deserves punishment because they they did some moral act or created some harm in the world. Another one is the idea of deterrence. Um, we have punishment so that people will, you know, will not commit crime knowing that they could get punished for their actions. And then one of the third primary ones, which is related to um, the one that is most closely related to the use of algorithms and sentencing is the idea of incapacitation. So, if somebody is locked up in jail or prison, they're not prevented from committing all crimes. Certainly, there's a, a lot of crimes that go on behind bars, but they are limited in the amount of crimes they can commit when the victims are outside of jail or prison. They're incapacitated from committing crimes that they might have otherwise committed while locked up. And so when judges are sentencing, one of the things they're doing is trying to evaluate how likely it is that a person is going to commit crime in the future. So if they're lenient on that person and they're released and they go out in the world and do something really, really heinous, you know, that's something the judge wants to avoid. And they want to avoid it not only because, you know, that's good, good law and policy, but also because if you're a judge and you let someone free and they go out and do something bad, that can come back to you. You know, that can affect your likelihood of being reelected. That can affect, you know, how you're uh, maybe what your friends think of you, your colleagues think of you, and so forth. That's a very visible mistake. So historically, how did judges engage in that kind of risk assessment? In other words, what did they look to in order to decide what sort of risk of 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 recidivism would be perhaps mitigated by incapacitation? So to a certain extent, who knows how judges make these predictions? It's a gut feeling, you know, that it's something that they see when they look at a defendant, the way they bear themselves, whether or not they look you directly in the eye. 
And of course, with these kind of gut level predictions, it's susceptible to all sorts of error. And I don't just mean prediction error, but racism, classism, all sorts of things that we don't want influencing uh, uh, sentencing. Um, now, that being said, there there are other things that judges look to that in a statistical sense are indeed correlated with um, with recidivism, things like the number of crimes that a person has committed in the past and so forth. Um, but in many ways, there is nothing, there is no more black of a box than the inside of a person's mind when they're trying to evaluate things that are that are hard to know, such as a person's criminal propensity. What exactly is algorithmic risk assessment then? Like, how does it work? And why is it supposed to improve sentencing decisions? So risk assessments are built by statistically analyzing large data sets collected by the courts and by the police in the process of their day-to-day duties to try and figure out which factors statistically correlate and predict the likelihood that somebody is going to reoffend. Um, and the input factors include things like the criminal record, includes things, basic demographic information like age, sometimes gender. They don't include race explicitly, but of course, race is correlated with many of the inputs, both the criminal record inputs and also um, sometimes many risk assessments include socioeconomic variables such as marital status, employment status, whether or not a person is, has stable housing and so forth. So the the algorithm kind of crunches the numbers and comes up with a formula you know whereby each of these different factors have different weight in the prediction. At the end of the day, what you have is this risk assessment score which is often then kind of subdivided into different risk categories. So judges are never told, oh this person has a, you know, 6% chance of being rearrested within six months. Instead, what they're told is this person is a moderate risk defendant. Um, so the idea here, I mean, the goal behind them, why people get excited about these is that if judges are already engaged in the process of prediction, they're just doing it badly. They're doing it by the gut level. I have a hunch about that person. You know, uh, we can improve criminal justice functioning by giving them better predictions. And these algorithms are supposed to be better. They're suppo- many people believe, and there's a lot of evidence suggesting, that they're more accurate than human intuition in evaluating the likelihood that people are going to reoffend in the future. So what does that give us if we have more accuracy? So, uh, you know, as I'm sure everybody knows, we have the largest criminal justice system in the world. We, we lock up more people per capita than anywhere else by a factor of, you know, or at least any, any other Western European country by a factor of like four or five. And so people are looking for a way to wind that down, to wind down the huge numbers of people incarcerated in this country. And yet at the same time, there's a fear that, oh, if we lower incarceration rates too much, are we going to have crime spiking? And, you know, this is both a legitimate, uh, you know, concern. And this is also, you know, on a, on a political level, it's hard, (laughs) it's hard to get, it's hard to pass legislation if people are afraid of crime, even if the, you know, the burdens of incarceration uh, are so substantial, but you come along, you have these risk assessment tools that promise increasing efficiency in criminal justice. 
And the, the increase in efficiency is by making smarter predictions. And what, at least in theory, they should be able to do is allow us to wind down mass incarceration without increasing crime rates. And the way that that works is you're able to identify those at lowest risk of reoffending and release those people, let them go home. And so the jails and prisons are only filled with the type of people that really are at higher risk of reoffending and for whom there's more of a reason uh, to hold them. Well, so it's my understanding then that a lot of people are really excited about these kinds of new risk assessment tools because they enable the justice system to correct for biases caused by like lack of information or undesirable incentives or prejudice, you name it. But I know a lot of people are also concerned that there might be biases baked into to the algorithms. Could you talk a little bit about sort of some of the concerns that people might have and sort of like what sort of pushback there might be against some of these newest risk assessment tools? Yeah. So like I was saying, race is never an explicit input to risk assessment algorithms, but it gets in through the back door. And that's because it's correlated with pretty much every single input there is. Um, The most obvious one is zip code. Zip code is really an explicit proxy for race slash class. Um, But, you know, many, many risk assessment tools for that reason have stopped using zip code. You know, next on the list is the socioeconomic variables I mentioned previously. You know, in this country, you know, race is intimately correlated with um, education and income. uh, So that, that uh, serves as a disadvantage for people of color. Um, But even, you know, even the, the criminal history variables are, are, the process of a racially biased and racially disparate world that we live in. So you have a black person and a white person and they each commit the same offense. Let's just say they smoke marijuana. They've got some marijuana in their pocket. Who's more likely to get arrested? The black person, not only because of racism, but you know, chances are they live in a neighborhood that's more heavily policed. There's more police on the streets, the more likely they are to, you know, to detect um, the presence of an illegal drug and so forth. Who's more likely to be convicted? Probably the black person again. All the same reasons, um, but you also have, uh, you know, access to you know the income. The income variable comes in more. You have access to uh, disparate as- access to uh, quality legal defense. Um, who's more likely to be incarcerated? So on and so forth. So you have two people with a very similar criminal record. They'll get the same risk score, but what that criminal record indicates about what they've actually done. And what they're likely to do in the future is different across races. And so, you know, sometimes you hear people using this phrase like, oh, this, this risk assessment is race neutral. That's just not, that's just, that's not true in any meaningful sense of the world word. Um, it, you know, all risk assessments suffered from these issues that I've talked about. And there's really, unfortunately, there's no easy fixes to them either. Because uh, a lot of the issues comes down to things that we don't see. We all have this, you know, feeling that, somebody who has the same number of prior or people across races who have the same number of prior arrests may have committed a different number of crimes. How much is that differential? We don't really know. Um, I do want to say, however, that this is not uniquely a problem of algorithms. This is actually a problem of prediction period. No. So, you know, most of the heuristics that human beings develop to predict future offending 
are similar. You know, the, the judge may look at the number of prior arrests, the number of prior convictions. You know, the judge, I guess, theoretically could do some compensation inside their mind for the fact that different circumstances create different propensities for arrest, but do they? Um, it's not entirely clear. Uh, so yeah, so this is something that a lot of people have latched onto and, and you know, has really generated a lot of fear and a lot of concern about these algorithms, very rightfully so. Um, the, the harder question though is, well, what's the solution? Is this better than the status quo? Is this worse than the status quo? Is there some other realistic alternative beyond these, but beyond kind of the status quo or risk assessments uh, that doesn't suffer from that same problem? Um, and this is a question that, that people are, are actively very much wrestling with. So in your paper, you try to really grapple with some of these problems by taking a much more granular look at a particular risk assessment tool used in a particular context. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the subject of your study, the sort of data set that you used, and how you went about analyzing it. Yeah, so uh, me and me and my co-author's interests were, you know, all, all of this conversation about risk assessments, it's mostly been in this abstract kind of hypothetical space. People say, well, theoretically, there's lots of reasons that they can bring all these great things, this big increase in efficiency, the ability to wind down mass incarceration without having any adverse consequences in terms of crime. And on the other side, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of very legitimate concern about racial bias. But the, you know, the question I think many people would be most interested in is what does it actually do to racial disparities in sentencing? when it's adopted. If at the end of the day, it winds up doing all the good things plus lowering racial disparities, you know, I think people might be a little bit more comfortable with putting some of these academic concerns um, about, uh, about how they're constructed aside. And so we set up out to see, well, what happens when a jurisdiction adopts risk assessment at sentencing? How do various outcomes that we care about change when the judge has access to the risk assessment? as opposed to before they had access to it. Do we see the increase in efficiency, the lowered incarceration rates um, without any adverse consequences? How did it affect racial disparities and so forth? And so we, uh, we wound up studying uh, the use of risk assessment in Virginia. So Virginia was an early adopter of these risk assessment algorithms. They adopted them in the early 2000s. And, um, they adopted two different risk assessments. We're mostly going to focus on one of them, although if there's time, I'll talk about the other. But the, the one that's the focus of the paper is this, they call it the nonviolent risk assessment. It's designed just to be used on people convicted of nonviolent offenses, such as fraud, larceny, and drug offenses. And it was designed to be a decarceral tool. So decarceral means like reducing incarceration. It was designed to identify the 25% lowest risk nonviolent offenders and divert them from jail or prison. Um, and the, the goal was, you know, there was concern that previous reforms had increased jail populations, ones that had gone in some years before, jail, sorry, prison populations, and that this was going to be a way of kind of winding that back down. Um, so we got data from the Virginia Criminal Sentencing Commission, who keeps immaculate records on all felony conveyed cases um, that were sentenced in Virginia back into the mid-90s. And we do basically an empirical analysis of how risk assessment affected these, these key factors. 
Mm. And so what did you end up finding? I mean, sort of like what kinds of recommendations did the risk assessment tool provide and how did judges react to those assessments? I mean, were there any sort of notable or maybe unexpected sort of um, recommendations or sort of ways that judges went about kind of using or thinking about the recommendations that they received? Yeah. So first of all, let me just reiterate, it wasn't like Virginia's, you know, the sentencing commission just handed this instrument to the judges and said, here's this thing, use it however you want. It was much more specific than that. It was like, we're going to use it to reduce incarceration rates for this lowest risk population. Um, That didn't happen. I mean, well, it didn't exactly happen. Incarceration rates didn't decline at all. What did happen was there was a reshuffling of who was in jail or prison. There were more people with low risk scores were released. People with higher risk scores were more likely to be incarcerated and for longer periods of time. So it wasn't exactly what was intended when the risk assessment was adopted, you know, because it was adopted to lower, uh, you know, to lower the net uh, incarceration rates for this group. But it still is consistent with one of the visions of risk assessments promise. What it led was a reshuffling in who was incarcerated so that the people who were at highest risk of offending were now behind bars. Now, if that was, you know, if, if things worked out the way people hoped it would when they adopt risk assessment, that could have other auxiliary benefits such as a lowering of recidivism, a lowering of crime, because like I said, the people at the highest risk of reoffending were at least supposedly now being locked up. So that didn't happen. That didn't happen. It didn't bring about either of the two good things that we had hoped for. It didn't lower incarceration rates. It didn't lower crime rates. Um, and so this was very you know, perplexing to us. Judges do use it, first of all. That was the first thing we checked. We're like, well, are they just ignoring it altogether? And that's not true. It did influence sentencing. Um, But it didn't influence sentencing in every case. Judges used their discretion to follow the risk assessment instrument in some circumstances and to overrule it to continue on their, their kind of gut opinion in other circumstances. And that is a very important fact about how algorithms are used in practice that has been underappreciated by the literature. It's not just like you adopt an algorithm and all of a sudden the human being is taken out of the picture. No, in most settings, certainly in criminal justice settings, you give an algorithmic prediction to a human being and that human being then has to interpret that that information, you know, through their, you know, through back through that black box of the human factor. And what comes out on the other end can sometimes be unexpected. And so we dug a little more into how judges were using these. What factors predicted the likelihood that the judge was going to follow the risk assessment? What factors predicted the likelihood they were going to ignore it? And we noticed a very phenomenon. Um, Judges were systematically overruling, ignoring high risk designations for young offenders. Now, just to tell you a little bit about criminology 101, the first thing you learn in criminology 101 is the the age-crime relationship. 
the likelihood of committing crime peaks when you're about 18, 19 years old, you know, stays high through the early 20s and then plummets. That is one of the most important kind of consistent, sizable things about criminal activity that is known to, uh, to us today. And so risk assessments, consistent with that, they, they weight young age really, really heavily. In many cases, they weight it substantially more heavily than, uh, than the criminal record. And so what you have is these risk assessment instruments that, that are telling judges, take all those teenagers, take all those young adults, take all those early 20s boys and lock them up. Throw away the key, or at least throw away the key, you know, for five or 10 years until they've aged out of crime, in which case, you know, let them free because they no longer pose this risk. What judges were saying was like, eh, you know, that's not actually what I want to do. And I think most people would hear that and say, you know, actually, that's actually not my conception of justice either. Like, there's lots of reasons to feel sympathetic to young people, to feel like they deserve a second chance, to realize oh, they're just hot-headed, they're a teenager, they're, you know, poor impulse control, brain is not fully developed, peer, peer pressure, they're going to grow out of it anyway. Like, I don't actually want a lot take this 19-year-old kid who did something dumb and ruin his life by locking him up. And so there's this kind of tug of war. This is something that I've explored with um, Christopher Slobogan in, in a separate paper. There's this tug of war between, uh, between treating young age as a aggravator from the perspective of risk, you know, if you want to lock up the people at highest risk of, of committing crime, it is true. You do want to lock up the young people. And on the other hand, treating young age as a mitigator because of these culpability concerns. And what judges were saying is that, you know, they weren't comfortable with going all the way with treating young age as, a, as an aggravator in the way that the risk assessment suggested. Now we do this simulation. It's interesting. We do this simulation that looks at what sentencing would have been like, uh, age disparities in sentencing would have been like if judges had fully sentenced by the algorithm, basically like take discretion out, they're just doing what the algorithm says they should do. And the, uh, the relative sentence length for young people would have gone up by 40%. That's a really, is a really big change. It would have been a stark, stark increase and, and switch in our, our sentencing regime. Now, Relative sentencing did go up a little bit for young people as a result of, of risk assessment adopted, but by nowhere near as much as it would have been. Now, I started this by saying that this might tell us something about why we weren't getting the beneficial effects we'd hoped for in terms of uh, reducing recidivism. And the bottom line is we, predicting future offending is actually hard. We're sort of, I think many people are used to thinking that Computers can do everything, you know, big data knows, knows all, you know, they can predict what I'm going to eat for breakfast tomorrow, what color socks I'm going to wear. Um, it's just not true for criminal justice. And that's partly a function of, you know, somewhat of a limited data set available. That's also just partly a function that of among the people that were arrested and convicted to begin with, it's hard to predict among these people who is most likely to reoffend. And actually age is one of the most important pieces of information in that. And if age is effectively off limits as an input to risk assessment, because judges are saying, no, actually, I don't want to treat young people this harshly, it really undermines the amount of predictive information that the risk assessment is providing. 
what it's suggesting is that, yeah, well, the tool might still have some, you know, some amount of benefit, but nowhere near as much as prior studies were telling us. Uh, and by benefit, I mean um, increased uh, predictive cap capability relative to human beings. Um, and so this is, I don't think this is a complete explanation for why we didn't see the recidivism drop, um, but I do believe it's a, a partial explanation and it's one that we explore in the paper. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I found this really fascinating. And I mean, I must say, I imagine many, if not most listeners would probably be sympathetic to the idea that, you know, erring on the side of locking up young people during, you know, much of their 20s would probably not be the ideal kind of social <laughs> move in the criminal justice system. Uh, I wonder, in, in, in your study, did you find any other examples of bias or sort of like judges either using or not using the algorithmic risk assessments in ways that exacerbated or reflected other kinds of problems, especially the potential for the kinds of racially inflected biases yeah. or issues that a lot of people are concerned about. Yes, of course. So, so here we, we evaluate what the impacts of adopting risk assessment were on, on racial disparities. And, and before we do that, we, prevent, we present some basic descriptives, which confirm that, unex, you know, not unexpectedly, black defendants have substantially higher risk scores than white defendants, even after you control for uh, the sentence guidelines for a particular case, they still have just, you know, their, their, their risk scores are just substantially higher. Now, once again, though, does that mean that adoption of risk assessment is going to be worse than the status quo when judges are already leaning on um, racially biased heuristics in, uh, in prediction. Um, theory is unclear. And in fact, the empirics suggest that it's not that different. So statewide, we find that risk assessment had no effect on racial disparities. It didn't lower it. It didn't increase it. Or if it did, you know, not by much, not by enough that we can detect you know, these relatively small changes with the statistical tools that we're using. Um, that being said, there are a couple of things that are red flags that we found in the data. So um, we do some analysis of courts in which judges appear to particularly use the risk assessment algorithm. So, just, you know, people are different idiosyncratic preferences. Some judges really used it a lot. It really influenced sentencing. For others, less so. Um, we identify a group of courts in which the judges were really heavily using it, and racial disparities did increase among those courts. So what do you take away from that? Does it mean that more heavy use leads to more uh, racial disparities? You know, not entirely clear, but it's a, it's a red flag on a very important issue. Mm. Well, so Virginia also adopted an algorithmic risk assessment system for sex offenders, which you look at it in your paper. And I understand that the data wasn't as robust, so you couldn't make quite as strong sort of findings and conclusions. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that worked and how you analyzed it and, you know, kind of what you found about sort of, you know, whether that was effective in terms of predicting uh, recidivism and also sort of how judges responded to the incentives provided to them by that alternative or that novel way of thinking about risk assessment in that context. 
Yeah, so judges, uh, sorry, not judges, Virginia adopted two risk assessments. The one we were just talking about, that's the nonviolent offender risk assessment. The other one is for sex offenders and sex offenders only. And this one was incorporated into uh, uh, sentencing policy as a sort of one-way ratchet to authorize longer sentences for those at the highest risk of reoffending. And there's a couple of different categories of risk. Those at the highest risk could have their sentences increased or the, the upper bound of the range of sentences that are considered compliant with sentencing guidelines increases by 300%. So that's a lot. There is no, you know, you can be more lenient on lower risk people. It's a one-way ratchet towards longer sentences for sex offenders, consistent with a movement towards taking these types of crimes uh, more seriously. What did we find? We found the opposite. Sentences, both the probability of incarceration and the sentence length for sex offenders decreased right after risk, the sex offender risk assessment was adopted. Um, and this was you know, an, another thing that at first was very puzzling to us. And we explored a couple of different theories for this. So you know, the first thing we thought is, well, maybe the risk assessment taught judges that sex offenders are less risky than they had previously thought. Now, this is possible, but it's not entirely convincing because as I said, the risk assessments don't actually convey any statistical information to the judges. They don't say, you know, as I began, this person has a, you know, 6% chance of being rearrested for a violent crime within six months. They say this person is, you know, in, is a moderate risk person. Um, so there's, you know, there's no reason to believe a priori, you know, that, that there's any kind of real learning going on. And so Finally, the explanation that makes the most sense to us was actually something that was suggested to us by a couple of judges that we spoke to during the process of, of doing research for this paper. And um, the story goes like this. So there are asymmetric incentives that a judge faces. If a judge releases someone who then goes on to commit a crime, there are lots of consequences for that judge. As I mentioned previously, re-election, um, you know, likelihood of reappointment, you know, bad publicity, and even setting all those things aside, you know, just the judge may feel personal shame, personal remorse about that. Um, but take the other type of problem, uh, when this is, a, you know, in statistical terms, a type one error, when the judge fails to release somebody, incarcerates them for a long time, but if they had been freed, they wouldn't have done anything. Um, that type of error, that type of, uh, you know, th that type of action doesn't have the same consequences for a judge because it's largely invisible. You don't know who would have been able to be freed without uh, going on to, to do anything bad in the future. Um, and so because of that, judges are risk averse. They tend to over-incarcerate, particularly for the types of uh, crimes where, um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of fear of reoffending and a lot of stigma attached with, uh, uh, you know, that type of criminal activity, such such as sexual assault and rape. And so, our, how does so how does risk assessment play in here? So, if judges are in fact a little risk averse, they're afraid of being as lenient as their true preferences would have them be. Um, risk assessment serves as a sort of second opinion. It serves as something that you can point to to justify 
what your pre what your what your your natural instinct would be to do. Um, and so even though the risk assessment tool was designed to be this one-way ratchet to only authorize higher sentences, the truth is that more than half of all defendants were in the lowest risk category. And so if the judge felt like, you know, they, you know, that they wanted to be lenient with somebody charged with this, it, you know, there, there, there was now this sort of political shield that could prevent potentially full blowback on them if something uh, were to happen. Because they could say, how was anyone to know even this risk assessment tool said they were in the lowest risk category? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really fascinating and an interesting sort of look into the incentives uh, that judges have in sort of ultimately deciding what sentence to to impose. So, so Megan, in in closing, I, mean, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on what kind of lessons you think we can learn from the study that you conducted about algorithmic risk assessment and how we can use it more effectively, both in a technical sense, but also sort of in an institutional sense. Like, how do we make this tool, to the extent we can make this tool, useful and sort of um, effective from a criminological perspective? So I think the big lesson for me that I learned while working on this research is just, you know, the. It's a tool in the hands of humans. That's why we titled the paper the way it was. Just like anything else, it can have positive effects, it can have negative effects, but most of these depend on how they are used by the human beings that are tasked with using them. And so I guess, you know, if, if my, my aspirations are for this paper are that it will help shift the attention away from the algorithm itself, away from both the kind of good characteristics that the algorithm might have in terms of providing better predictions away from the bad characteristics it might have in terms of the racial impact and look at uh, you know the, the the tool within a context of human beings that have their own desires their own incentives their own beliefs and trying to understand more how this tool enters into that human landscape uh, in order to affect the outcomes at the end of the day that we we most care about um, so I, you know, I, I, I see this as the beginning of a conversation and a beginning of a research endeavor, certainly not the end of it. Um, and I look forward to, to seeing what the next round of research says about, about how humans use, um, use and interact with algorithms. Excellent. Well, I hope you can come on the show again and talk about your future findings because <laughs> I found this paper really fascinating and um, quite uh, unexpected and provocative. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time, and I really enjoyed talking with you today. One, two, three.